0: what's up everybody welcome to the new fox sports podcast out of character with ryan satin that's me i am ryan satin and i will be interviewing wwe on-air talent every week here to find out more about the people that you see on your tv screens i am very excited to be doing this if you don't know me I let's see, where did I start? I started at TMZ. That's probably where most people first got to know me. I was the guy who wore wrestling shirts on the show. And you know, when I started there, I was told to take a niche thing, the thing that I liked most, and go become the best reporter at that. The answer was so simple it was pro wrestling, it was WWE. I love wrestling with a passion, I've loved it since I was a little kid. I think the first time I fell in love with wrestling was watching Nick Foley go off the Hell in a Cell, and that might sound a little grim, but when I was watching it, it just, it was that moment when I realized that I didn't know if what I was watching was real or if it was staged. And that's when I became hooked. The the behind the scenes, the, the real or fake, the kayfabe aspect of things, just fascinated me from a young age. It wasn't long after that where I saw uh, beyond the mat uh, in theaters. I actually saw it before it came out because my dad works in TV and he took me to a screening. And it was at that moment when I saw that movie and I saw that the people who we see getting slammed in the ring, going off of a Hell in a Cell, they're such deeper individuals than I could have ever imagined. You see these guys who are getting hit with chairs and you think that they're these like macho dudes or whatever, but when you find out that there's more to the person that you're watching on screen. I think that it helps you connect with those people a little more and that's what always happened to me. I connected with all of the wrestlers when I learned that there were real individuals behind them with motivations and and lives and children and all that kind of thing. It's really when I learned that the world of professional wrestling was probably the most entertaining an interesting entertainment medium that that exists. So that's really when my fascination when things started. So when I went to TMZ and I started at TMZ, I just started working on wrestling stuff. And honestly, I never told people that I watched wrestling. It was something that I kept secret from all my friends. I just, it was my secret passion that I enjoyed doing. And when I started talking about wrestling on TMZ, I saw that there were so many other people out there like me who maybe, Kept it private. Who didn't talk about it, or who were as obsessed with it as I was, and did tell everybody. And 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 that's when I realized that the community of wrestling fans is the community that I wanted to be a part of. That's who I felt were my people. And so ever since then, I really tried to work hard at doing things in the entertainment industry to put wrestling in a positive light. I left TMZ. I went. I started my own wrestling news website called ProWrestlingSheet.com. I ran that for five years as editor in chief. And during that time, I always felt like the dirt sheets that everyone talks about were always filled with false information. I'd always see false news stories. I'd see this thing that says that's gonna happen, but it never happened. And it would always drive me absolutely crazy. So when I started Pro Wrestling Sheet, my purpose was to bring factual news to the world of professional wrestling. And I really feel like I did that for the past five years. But when I started working at WWE backstage, I I got the taste for the Fox life. And I wanted to take things to the next level. I'd hit a ceiling at Pro Wrestling Sheet. And my passion is conversations. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy learning more about professional wrestlers and the work that they do in the ring. And so that's why, I have now come here to Fox Sports to do this show, to do weekly interviews where I'm gonna to talk to the people that I find most interesting, talk to them about the matches that I like, talk to them about the storylines that I was most interested in, and talk to them about their motivations and how they built the characters that we have grown to love. I really hope that you guys enjoy these conversations as much as I do, and this first one is not gonna let you down. We have got a huge one for episode number one. We have got a WWE Hall of Famer. We've got the 2021 Royal Rumble winner, former WWE Champion, Edge. And he's gonna talk all about his history in WWE, wrestling at WrestleMania this year on the 10 year anniversary of his retirement. We're gonna talk TLC, we're gonna talk everything. Make sure you stick around for this whole thing. It's gonna be awesome.
1: I didn't necessarily know how it was going to work or, uh, but I don't think anybody did because like I said, I was at one point I was going to be quoting poetry and I was told we'll just be like Jim Morrison.
0: <laughs> What's up everybody? We're now here with my guest this week, former WWE and world heavyweight champion, 2021 Royal Rumble winner and soon to be challenger for the universal championship at WrestleMania edge edge. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I appreciate it very much.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Is this your first one or am I just in like the first week or this, month? This,
0: well, this is the second one I'm recording pulling behind the curtain a little okay. bit, but, but uh, you will be episode number one. We got to have the WrestleMania headliner as episode number one for my podcast. So well, thank you. So since this show is called Out of Character, I want to start this conversation off by asking you this. How much of you, the person, like your real true self, is there in the Edge character?
1: Uh, it depends on what era we're talking. Um, right now. Let's, let's until, start with now. Right now, a lot. A, a, a lot of Adam Copeland is, is involved in this character. Um, I, I just decided that I needed to lean into a lot of things. You know, I was gone for nine years, I'm 47 years old now. Um, I'm coming back from an injury that literally no one in sports has ever come back from. So uh, to me, I needed to lean into those things in the reality of the situation, because to try and, you know, act like they're not there and, and the reality of that isn't there to me, that that's, I don't know, it, it doesn't do uh a lot of justice to, to what's happening so there's a lot of adam copeland in this along with certain characters that i've tried to pull from i always look to movies uh music things like that and to me this this was logan this is um this is rocky balboa where he faced antonio tarver you know that that's the stage that's where i'm at um, I'm not 27, so why am I going to try and, you know, grasp at being 27? Besides, mentally, I'm way better now than I was at 27. So there's a lot more Adam to this than there ever was before, because I always said once I walked through the curtain, it was Edge, and I put on the cloak of Edge as soon as kind of that trench coat and music hit. Um, but now it, it's much more um, just closer to me.
0: Well, I think the grit that you talk about having since coming back really is part of that. It, meant, it, it, it goes with the whole Logan vibe that, that you just referenced as well of, like, you're a grizzled veteran who is smarter than when you were here last time. And I think that really shows in the ring. I really felt that way when you wrestled Jay Uso uh, the other day.
1: I had a blast wrestling Jay and, and he was my first opponent outside of Randy um, since I've been back. Besides, you know, things in the Royal Rumble. But it, it was for me, it was fun to be able to get in there with somebody who, in, in my eyes, is like wrestling a new guy. Meanwhile, you know, the Usos have been around for like a decade or more. Um, it just so happens that I was gone for all that time. So that was really exciting to me. And, and I think more than anything, what I want to try and tell in coming back is simple stories. Um, okay, this guy is in the twilight of his career. So an elbow to the ribs. From a cross-faced chicken wing, if you catch somebody in the right spot, that can drop you. So, to me, why not try and tell a story that everyone can understand? Um, and that was really the story of the match. He went after my ribs, and I went after his shoulder, and that was it. But it was it was a lot of fun. It really was. Um, and, and still get in there and try the, the top row Kura Karana's and things like that every once in a while, just make sure that there's still dollops of that in there. Um, but I'm just realizing too, recovery after a match. Now takes a lot longer than it used to. And, um, I'm completely transparent with that aspect. You know, it's sometimes I think we get desensitized to, um, Oh, well, that's what they do. And, uh, it, it must be easy. It, it was never easy, but it's even harder at this stage of the game and uh, But again, that's part of the challenge and and I get off on challenges.
0: yeah, I, you know, I wrote an article about SmackDown last week, and you know when I was talking about your match, I loved that you you take what you what you were saying right there about how it does hurt It, do, it is harder for you to recover, but I like that you know that everybody knows that about you because of your absence, and you almost use it to your strength in the ring to sell all the stuff that you're doing to look even more painful than it might be.
1: Um, I I think I have to, I, it'd be silly not to know. It's like, I see someone take a German suplex and come up, fired up. I don't get that because German suplexes hurt. So why would we desensitize the audience to thinking they don't, they suck. (laughs) So sell it like they suck. And and, um, so I'm just trying to get mileage, really, and and show that, I don't know, let's say you watch a UFC fight, a dude gets a liver shot. There's that kind of delayed reaction. And with Jay, that was what I was trying to get across, like maybe just crack a rib. And that's not out of the realm of possibility. Like that that could happen, especially at where I'm at in my career. Um, and, And really just try and tell those kind of stories where you're fighting from behind. You're fighting from underneath and you're trying to to just get this thing done and you might not always get it done, but you're always going to try and show that, that kind of effort. Um, and I think that's really what it, this whole run of Edge boils down to is uh, just not trying to um, – any kind of false um, – you know misconceptions about what this is i know what this is every time you see me in there it could be the last time and i know that and i also know what i went through to get back to do this and and it wasn't easy and the prep for each match is not
0: easy and the fallout from each match is not easy i'm not gonna lie about that it's true yeah no that definitely makes sense well let's go back a little bit let's go back to the other version of Edge, before you came back, you know, how much of you were were you, like how much of the real sense of Adam was in that version of Edge?
1: Very little, very little. Um, I I would, that's when I would try and pull from these, you know, larger than life kind of, um, I always said rated our Superstar Edge was kind of like Appetite for Destruction era Guns N' Roses, or Too Fast for Love era Motley Crue, like this. Sleazy, slimy, pretty horrible person that you could picture crawling out of the gutter to try and steal your girlfriend. Like <laughs> yeah. he was that guy. Um, and that, that, um, I always said, when I walked through that curtain, that's when I became Edge. And then as soon as I walked back through that curtain, I'm going to grab a coffee and I'm right back to being Adam. And now that, that has changed, which has been really, um, been interesting to to play less of a character and more of me in a way it's it's kind of scary because now um, it's more of me out there warts and all and uh, but but it's it's fun too it really is it's, it's been a lot of fun to kind of um, play this phase of the character
0: yeah I, I can imagine so in talking about your history We have seen the character undergo many changes over the years. I want to take a look back at a few different phases of Edge and talk about them a little, starting with your WWE debut in 1999. What was your initial thought when you started filming those vignettes in the subway and on the streets? Did you think it was going to be lame or did you think it was going to be cool?
1: Um, I think it was just, it was actually the beginning. and It was somewhere in 98 because I think... uh, I signed and I had my first match in 96 for WWE. Okay. Um, and then, uh, signed in 97. And then we got rolling in 98. And, and, and that's what it was. We filmed these vignettes in Brooklyn. And I thought visually, these could be pretty cool, but I have no idea what it is. And come to find out, nobody did. It was, uh, <laughs> didn't know it's just Edge. And what is Edge? Nobody knew. So there was some, um, It was exploratory, I guess, and and just trying to decipher what exactly this was. Um, You know, I have some creative drawings and I I look like a BG, like a Gothic BG almost, you know? And I just went, okay. So they've taken Marilyn Manson and Barry Gibb and mashed it together. And this is how they they picture me. Okay, that's not me. So (laughs) I, I need to have at least something that I would find intriguing if I'm watching the show. And to me, that was not leather pants. That was not going to be a silk shirt undone to here with gold chains and green hair. I, at the end of the day, I still wanted Edge to look like a wrestler, come out looking like a rock star. But when the trench coat and all that stuff comes off, it's tights, it's boots, and you're now there to do what you're supposed to do, which is wrestle. Um, so I didn't necessarily know how it was going to work. Or, uh, but I don't think anybody did because like I said, I was at one point I was going to be quoting poetry and I was told, well, just be like Jim Morrison. What does that mean? Like, do I just wander down the, the, the ramp, like flipping my, my package out like he did in Miami? Like, I, I don't, what, what, what does that mean? Just be Jim Morrison. Um, that's not a creative direction. That's, you know, it's lazy. So, um, I needed to somehow make it my own and thankfully I was given the freedom to stumble through and, and try and uh, flesh that out.
0: Do you feel like on your first pay-per-view that you had fleshed that out already because you, t- you teamed with Sable at the, at the Highway to Hell SummerSlam, and that was right when she was starting to become a big deal but it was still early on in your run as well. Did you feel like you had figured out what the character was at all by that point?
1: Absolutely not. You know, <laughs> uh, I was just stoked that my first pay-per-view was SummerSlam and it was Madison Square Garden, you know, and those two things, you can never take those two things away. Like, that, that to me is, you know, if you're going to debut somewhere, at MSG, you know, short of being your hometown, that's the next best place, right? So, I and I had a blast, you know. I, Mark Merrow, um and Jacqueline don't get enough credit for just how good they were. Uh, you know, I just saw a Jacqueline match against a young, young Molly Holly when she was Starla Sexton on Sunday Night Heat. And people forget just how damn good Jackie and, and Molly, obviously, uh, were. So um, I, I had a, a great table set for me for that first pay-per-view. Had an overtag team partner and great opponents.
0: So another thing that you had happen early on in your run was the brood. And... I personally feel like the brew doesn't get enough love when people talk about popular factions of that time. Do you feel like the brood is a little bit underrated for how cool they were? Um, I, I feel like people get it.
1: I really do. Um, it's just we were never plugged in at the top of the card, you know. Um, we were we were in our spot in the card, but we made we squeezed every drop <laughs> uh, we could. <laughs> Out of where we were, you know, and the presentation and the ideas, and you know, once once they put us together, that's when I personally started to feel much more comfortable because this was something I could sink my teeth into, ah. um, and and really, I, I just I knew the package and the presentation was cool. So then we, we all hung out and I was reading vampire encyclopedias and I, you know, we, we watched blade and we're like bloodbath. That's a great idea. Okay. And, and just with the music and the intro and and we'd all just kind of start bobbing and that was just natural. It just happened. Um, So I think it's looked back on fondly, but what a lot of people don't remember is that the brew was only around for nine months.
0: That's it, really? That's crazy. Yeah, it feels like it was longer. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, what about the fire entrance, though? Was it was it kind of sketchy to do? It seems like that would be a nerve-wracking thing when you've got long hair, you know? It it was a little
1: sketchy at times because (laughs) you know, there's three of us, so you're, you're having to get three fairly large men on this little platform, and it was a rope of fire around us. So, and I was wearing pvc trench coats you know, pvc and flames don't really work well together and and i realized that a couple of times if you go back and watch them you can see me holding the coat super tight <laughs> to my body so that it doesn't in any way like kind of catch the flames and then all of a sudden it's like oh edge inferno um and i remember uh dave Gangrel the first time he did it he went to step off and his foot got stuck <laughs> so he's in the flames and his foot's like he's got the hot foot and he's trying to get it out and i oh man it was uh th- there were nights definitely you know they're they're wearing these you know highly flammable puffy shirts i'm wearing a pvc trench coat like um but it looked damn cool and and here was the thing every night as soon as that <sighs> would start you could just hear the crowd and you could hear that 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 uh, a, a rumble, uh, an anticipation and excitement, um, that, that was so much fun to hear as a performer to, to, you know, no matter where we were in the card, that was the reaction because the presentation was cool. And, and I'd like to think then once we actually got the opportunity, we could all go. And that, that was a really, really fun, fond um, aspect of my career for sure.
0: What about the five second pose era? Do you think, uh, did you enjoy getting to do comedy at that point in time? Yeah, because, you know, up until then,
1: we were kind of painted with the brush that we couldn't cut promos. And and a lot of that was because we, <laughs> we, we, we hadn't had any practice. We had no reps. We, you know, we know our sense of humor, but that doesn't mean it necessarily translates to the screen. and we realized that we were going to get an opportunity to be able to try and and get that across to the audience. And we always just thought, okay, if this is going to make us laugh, then it should make some percentage of our audience laugh as well. So you'd throw spaghetti at the wall and just see what stuck. Um, and and between Jay myself and Brian Gwertz, we, um, we, we just, we had a very good rapport and similar sensibilities in terms of comedy. So that's why all of those things started to, I I think click and I think that probably was the closest to Adam that I had ever gotten um, until, you know, kind of this impression of edge.
0: What do you have like a favorite memory from doing the five second poses? Like one that just sticks out to you the most. I mean,
1: there were a few that I really like the, the fat and fatter Elvis in Memphis with Jerry Lee Lewis in the, in the front row. I mean, you can't, I mean, so much fun. Right. And um, but any time that we could lampoon the local sports team, whether it's in Boston with the Buckner, you know, through the legs and Mookie Wilson jerseys or we're in Detroit and I'm covered up And every week, you know, the audience knew it was coming and the other the other foot was about to drop the other shoes about to drop. But they would still cheer us until I unveiled the Colorado Avalanche jersey. And it's like, oh, no, they got us again. They were in on it with us. Yeah. And um, that, that to me was a lot of fun. Like anytime you do those, you know, pretty harmless, some might say cheap heat, but, um, but fun. And, and I think aspects of what you want when you go to a wrestling show, it can't all be serious all the time you go to wrestling to forget about serious all the time.
0: That's my, that's why I'm so excited for WrestleMania this year to be there in person. Finally. It's, I feel like I've had a, a year of being stuck inside and serious. I I can't wait to cheer for people in in a crowd full of my fellow WWE universe.
1: And just get out and make noise and be with people and, and experience a social activity together. Like I, I can't wait as a performer, you know, just to, just to get in front of people again, because th- this year it's been difficult, obviously for multiple reasons, but if I'm just looking at it from the singularity of, you know, trying to perform and, and weekly convey this storyline, it's, it's really difficult without, without an audience. I, I don't think we have a true gauge of, of who's getting what reactions, any of that, because you can't base it off of social media. I mean, social media is very toxic place. So if, if, to get a true gauge, you need our audience there to really see where, where everything's lying. And and I'm looking forward to that at WrestleMania. And just to, you know, like I said, if you could just hug every member of that audience, and just go, okay, for this night we're back and we're doing this and here we are. We, we made it through this, at least this aspect of this pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, eventually you split from Christian and you started wrestling as a singles act again before winning Money in the Bank down the line and going on to become WWE champion for the first time. When you look back on this era of your career and you see yourself stepping into the Rated R superstar role, did younger you feel like he had something to prove to the top brass in WWE at the time? You mentioned that you had gotten past the promo hump. Did you feel like you still needed to prove that you were a top guy in WWE, though?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of been a recurring theme through my career, um, is... uh... Some people have the rocket strapped. Right. And, and that was never the case with me. Um, and that's cool because I'm all about trying to prove people wrong and and, you know, get it just through uh, being extremely stubborn. Um, and I, I did feel like there was still things to, to prove and um, and to myself as well. You know, I I still felt like I needed to grow as a performer and I needed to still flesh out what this stage was because anytime you get stagnant and stay with the same thing, I mean, the audience is going to let you know. I I remember um, SummerSlam with, uh, this was a very pivotal night for me. SummerSlam in Toronto. I hadn't been back in Toronto for two years because I'd been out with the first Spinal Fusion. I'm coming back as intercontinental champion, coming back from a broken neck i working Batista and Jericho in a triple threat and my hometown booed me. And I went, all right, we need to change some things. And I need to give them a reason to boo me and let, let's go, let's, let's go heal and let's fully run with this instead of, uh, me thinking that what was working could still work. Um, yeah, you have to change. You know, you see all of the, the major characters that have lasted throughout the years, and it's, it's reinvention. And the, the minute you um, stop thinking of those character steps, that's when you can get stagnant, and, and they'll let you know.
0: How important do you think John Cena was to your career at that time?
1: I, I think John Cena and I crossed each other's paths at, like, one of those lightning-in-a-bottle moments. And sometimes you just don't know because if you had told me a year, two years earlier that that would happen, I'd go, really? Huh? Okay. But then when we kind of tested it out there um, with, with new year's revolution and then it was just supposed to be a short lived thing. And then I drop it three weeks later at the rumble and and we kind of explore separate ways. But just in that time, I think, everyone realized there was something here. And Hulk Hogan needs his Roddy Piper and Roddy Piper needs his Hulk Hogan. And, <laughs> and I think every era has that. And, and I'd like to think that's what this became for that era. Um, you know, it was, it was the Yankees, Red Sox. It was the least Canadians. It was just one of those things that you keep going back to because the chemistry was there and, and it was pretty undeniable and and we just clicked in so many aspects we both looked at the business in the same way held it to the same regard both lifelong fans um he he absolutely accepted that that hero role and i absolutely accepted that slimy villainous role and for something to work at that level that's what you need is you need fully committed performers to understand what their task is
0: yeah as someone who was a big fan in that era i completely agree that you guys are the people i think of when i think of that time i while prepping for this interview, I went back and was watching stuff. Uh, my girlfriend wasn't with me at the time, so this was her first time seeing all of it. And just the magic that the two of you had in the ring together was so special. Like I went back and I watched when you cashed in Money in the Bank. I watched One Night Stand when you when you helped Rob Van Dam win the title. I watched some of your other guys' matches and I was just like, God, they had such great chemistry together. And I I, I, I feel like we are almost missing that second person right now. Like I wanna see, I feel like we need that like really evil guy right now. I feel like there's not something, like, Roman Reigns is kind of up there, I guess, for, but but he's like, he's not evil necessarily. He's more just mean, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, there, there, at some point there needs to be that heel that is not the overpowering heel. That is the conniving, that is the manipulating, that is the, oh man, if, if the babyface could get his hands on that guy, he would tear him apart. But he never gets because that heel is just always two steps ahead. Yeah. That, that, um, I, I don't know who that is right now, uh, you know, um, or, or who's being given that opportunity, to, to be honest. Um, somewhere along the way, it became less about heels and faces and just about stars. But in that, I I think you lost some of that dynamic
0: do you think that we need to get back to it in some way to get back to that and get away from the stars and go back to heels and faces
1: I mean I know the argument is as long as there's a reaction right Mm -hmm. um but I I mean there's a reason that stories generally have good and evil you can have shades of gray in there but if we all kind of navigate through this shades of gray then I don't know. You can get apathy too. So um, I personally love the white hat, black hat. I don't know how, how realistic that is now Um, just with how kind of splintered and and fractured everything is with um, social media kind of changing every, every form of entertainment. Um, But again, Maybe I'm just uh, hearkening back to days that I grew up on because, like I said, Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan, it was pretty cut and dry who was who. But if you go back and watch, there were still people cheering Roddy because he was just awesome at what he did.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. What would you say are the three moments that you think really helped you get to where you are today?
1: Um, oh gosh. I mean, I, I guess the first would be... Um, my mom accepting the fact that I wanted to be a wrestler and, and, and being, you know, fully supportive of that and not giving me the really, you know, how, how realistic is that? Because if, if that had been the reaction, then I mean, who knows if we're having this conversation, you know what I mean? So I think that was the first, you know, really, really pivotal thing that needed to happen in order for me to be able to try and do this thing is that that support at home um god there's so many little little points here and there you could say okay well it was doing a indie show in ajax ontario in front of 100 people and carl demarco who eventually became the canadian wwe president was there and so hey hey you're pretty good why don't you get me a tape and then i'm out at brett hart's training in his ring like it, there, there's so many things you know brett telling jr that we needed to take a look at this guy up in Canada, you know, and you have the the world champion at that point vouching for you. They're all things that, that it's so hard to pinpoint just those three things. Um, I, I, you know, um, cashing in the money in the bank, I think, set off something that um, showed that from a character perspective, I could, I, I belonged at the top of the card. And even if it was just that free window, I knew I had three weeks to try and prove it. And, and I'd like to think that in those three weeks, we got that accomplished. Um, yeah. You know, there's, and, and maybe coming back to the Royal Rumble last year, you know, the 2020 Royal Rumble. I think that may go down for me personally as, is the favorite, my favorite moment of my career. Um, and, and, probably what will end up being my last match. I think those are all, that hasn't happened yet. So it's <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it, man, it's so tough. It's so tough. To, but those, to that, I mean, those are exactly it. what I
0: was wondering. Cause I, I, in another interview I was doing, I talked to someone and uh, I can't say who since I'll spoil it, but, <laughs> but they similarly said something about like the, someone believing in them and someone giving them that support was their first one as well. So I like hearing that there's a person who said, hey, I, I believe in you, you know, and I think that that's, that's really the number one was your mom.
1: Yeah, and, and I try and bring that forward with my own girls. You know, they're, they're on four and seven right now, but I, I want to make sure that we foster whatever their dreams are and we water them and, we, you know, we don't shut them down because it sounds like a pipe dream because if anybody can, um, can appreciate that pipe dreams are possible, it, it's me and, and it's Beth. I mean, we both went out on a limb to try and make this crazy thing happen, and we both managed to. So if my girls come up to me and say they want to be a circus acrobat or if they want to, you know, be try and be the next Taylor Swift, I I don't know. Go for it. Let's try. And I'll give you every bit of the support that you need, because that's what I was given when I went to my mom with this crazy dream.
0: (laughs) So two of my all-time favorite matches are the Triple Threat Ladder match at WrestleMania 2000 and the TLC match uh, at WrestleMania 17. I, I, I just, it's crazy to me when I went back and watched them the other day because, you know, I feel like it was one of those game-changing matches where, you know, you guys really did up the level of action in WWE on the hardcore scale. Um, but what I was wondering is, you know, with now, We see social media, like you said, it's a toxic place out there because we can see everyone's thoughts. No one is filtered on social media. So we see when some legends or veterans or agents or whatever, when they think when they're not necessarily happy with what the younger wrestlers are doing today. Did you catch any shade from any like the agents or legends or anything like that when you came backstage for just doing so much in that match?
1: actually no it was the opposite at least i didn't hear any negative um all i heard was the positive and and i remember like mcfoley coming up and saying guys my god like you just set a new bar and and you just stamped your claim and you know all, all of these things you know i i will go back and say i think we went too far but and that's why I have a hard time now saying to talent, like maybe you should pull it back a bit and get more mileage. I, I truly believe that. And the reason I believe it is because I'm speaking from experience. I <laughs> yeah. done good matches, right? <laughs> um, but our mindset at the time was, okay, we got Austin and Brock and Undertaker and Kane and Nick and, and and Triple H and all of these huge stars firing on every cylinder. How do you get noticed? How do you carve a spot on this stacked roster, maybe the most stacked roster of all time? How do you get noticed? Well, what if we did this and you have six people with the same mindset and then you throw in Rhino and Spike Dudley and Lita and, and Mike. Like, so now we're just trying to create a tornado in a trailer park, but still hold true to some semblance of, OK, well, there's six of us. So if two of us take a big bump, they can go down and sell and not throw away that massive thing while the other four can cycle through and now the the first two are back up, and then you go into different incarnations from there but it, it, but it was tough at times because you're doing this you know insanity like I think the first TLC match was like sixteen or eighteen minutes long, yep. and it never stopped it was just wham 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 it, it was basically like if you want to draw a music analogy it was like an Inve Molmstein song it was just <laughs> all shred all the time and I, I especially where I'm at now um I, I'd like some feeling in my solos <laughs>
0: yeah dude that's 100% what I was thinking when I was watching it I was like man you don't have a break to look down at your phone while watching this match it's like exactly what you said when two guys go down the next two are like right back into the next thing and that was the thing I was most impressed in watching that match is there's not a dull moment the entire 15 16 minutes
1: and that was a huge challenge once we did those matches to go back and do a singles ladder match and I think the first one I did was against Christian and we're working for the IC title and we have half an hour and and we've been through all of these wars where there's six or eight of us. Now it's back to two of us. And it's like, ooh, there's gonna be some downtime. This audience is not used to that now. So there was a bit of a a kind of re-education, not only from our uh, aspect, but from the audiences as well to give some forgiveness to the fact like, okay, there's gonna be some selling and downtime in these matches in order for the story to be told properly.
0: Does it blow your mind as a longtime wrestling fan to be in the first of a match that's going to last forever like you the TLC match is going to last forever in wWE
1: I think now I can look back and kind of go, wow, all right, we were part of something, but at the time you're just like chewing through concrete to, to to stake your claim to this part of the show and we are we are integral to this and we need to be on the show and You know, the Hardys, the Dudleys and ENC need to be here kind of thing. That's that was really our only mindset then. Um, And but now, yeah, since there's a pay-per-view and there's, you know, been uh, so many of them over the years, you realize that you were on the the bottom floor of something pretty special.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you guys hadn't have had the the match you guys had who like, that wouldn't be a TLC well, pay-per-view. You hey, know? I,
1: guess if, I guess if we went out and stumped the joint up, then there wouldn't be a TLC pay-per-view.
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah, exa- exactly. So you mentioned uh, your, your Royal Rumble return. Uh, obviously it's a moment no one's ever gonna forget, but shortly after the pandemic caused fans to go away, how did it feel for you personally to see that happen when you had worked so hard to return to be in front of fans again? It had to have been such a gut punch.
1: I mean it it, no doubt about it you know um but you know i also realize there's much bigger things going on you know and i'm not gonna dwell on the aspect but man i just came back after nine years how can there be a pandemic like it's almost apropos in a way because nothing in my career has ever you know uh had some kind of um dream sequence plan you know it just uh there's always going to be something. And so if I'm looking at it from a completely selfish standpoint, yeah, it sucks. sure it does, you know, yeah. cause you always want to be in front of the audience, but I also understand that people are losing their lives and that's way more important than me jumping around in tights. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be nice to get an audience back hopefully before, uh, you know, properly, like we used to do it before I end up hanging them up again. Um, but who knows, right? Um, but, I, I, but I feel for a guy like Drew more than a guy like me because I, I've had so many moments in front of an audience, you know, and, and I have no complaints, man. My, I have had so many moments in my career that I can look back on so fondly and, and will bring huge smiles to my face. And, but for a guy like Drew who, who worked so long and, and took such a crazy bumpy road to finally get that moment... And there's nobody there for it, you know, that, that I, I feel for a guy like him. Um, and uh, so th- that's really more than anything. And instead of thinking about like, you know, oh, what was me? I was thinking, man, this sucks for Drew. This sucks for Rhea Ripley. It's her first WrestleMania, you know, it, it, things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. It definitely does suck for them. I hope Drew is the first one out because I think he deserves that, that monster pop from the crowd that, that everyone's waiting to get out of their yeah, system. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to WrestleMania though, how appropriate is it to have that match for you where you're gonna be headlining the show, take place on the 10 year anniversary of your forced retirement? Uh,
1: There's a lot of strange things that happened timing wise with this that I had no idea. Um, I, I didn't know that the rumble this year was 11 years to the day after I'd won the first one until like, you know, a week before or something, someone pointed it out to me, I was like, Wow. No idea. Uh, I, I don't keep track of dates or anything like that. Outside of my first, my very first WWE match, May 10th, 1996, Cops call Him against Bob Spark Sparkplug Holly. But <laughs> <laughs> um, everything else just kind of, if you told me a date, I'd say, okay, sure. Uh, but again, it got pointed out to me that the second night of Mania is 10 years to the day that I announced my own retirement. I'm wrong. You can't write stuff like that. You know, you can't plan these things. You can't map these things. But if I didn't tear my triceps against Randy, the timing of this whole thing doesn't work out. And um, I, I just, sometimes there's just things that, that fall in our laps and, um, and you can't map them. You can't plan them. You can't write stuff like that. That's just so crazy. And I don't know, serendipitous is the right word. Who, who knows? But um, sometimes it, it, things work and, magical ways and I think that that's one of them to be able to kind of come full circle a full decade after having this thing torn away from me that uh it's back and, and now I'm somehow in the main event of WrestleMania.
0: Such a cool story. It's crazy. And the fact that you, Daniel Bryan or sorry, excuse me, you, Roman Reigns, and Daniel Bryan's trying to get in the the main event of WrestleMania, um, the fact that the three of you, it's possible, could have been not in the ring at all this year. It's just crazy to me that you all were able to come back from such huge circumstances to be able to, to wrestle again. I just, it, it's, it's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost hard to, to try and um, tell the story of, of heroes and villains in a way, because you know you got these three guys who have um, had some, some pretty big lumps you know, thrown their way, but managed to to navigate them, to take the blows, to take the left hooks that life can throw and just kind of go, okay, shake it off. And and even if it takes nine years or if it takes two years or it takes three years, but if you had said, you know, four years ago that there was a possibility that three of us could be main eventing WrestleMania, I think most
0: people would say you're you're crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I would have been one of those people that said you're crazy. (laughs)
1: And it's weird because this is one of those instances where it's more than you know, Roman Reigns, Daniel Bryan, and Edge. That kind of goes more to Joe, Bryan, and Adam, and 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 just how, just how crazy it all is, and and I guess speaks to how stubborn the three of us are, and <laughs> and, uh, and 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 just a, a different mindset. You know, I respect the hell out of those guys because all right well
0: uh well i've reached the end here i just gotta that's why i talked over you for a second i (laughs) uh but i uh i i want to end this interview with the way i end most of my interviews uh and that's with three questions about the finishing move of the person i'm talking to for you that would be the spear so first tell me what's the best looking spear you ever delivered
1: i think it's got to be the jeff hardy one um you know, it's the only one I've seen that's taken place from like, I don't know, 15, 20 feet in the air. <laughs> and the margin for error uh, was so razor thin. Um, the, the fact that we pulled that off and were able to, you know, limp away from it, um, I, I think that's got to be the, the one. Um,
0: yeah. Do you think that's like the, the, the clip that of yours that'll get played the most throughout history?
1: I think that followed by spearing Foley through the flaming table, I think are the, good the two things. Um, and then and then probably last year's Rumble and uh, me trying to go back tears.
0: <laughs> yeah, when, when I was watching that match, like I said, I was showing my girlfriend that match and she was like, I can't believe that this guy is still wrestling after doing that, that all this time later that most of the guys in this match are still wrestling. But the fact that the one who took the spear and the one who did the spear are still wrestling is insane to me.
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're, uh,
0: we're moving a, a little slower, but uh, stands to reason, <laughs> right? Yes. So, okay, next, what's one time that you hit the spear that you wish you could take back for whatever reason?
1: Ah, uh, um, There was one I hit on Kurt Angle in a cage match in Calgary, and it was off the top rope, and I landed right on my elbow and tore my labrum, and that was my first injury. That was kind of the, the snowball effect. Once I had that injury and I didn't get it fixed, that then led to tearing this pec and then not getting it fixed. And that led to eventually a fused wrist. And that led to, you know, so I can all kind of point back to that one being the, um, the start of, of, of uh, uh, this whole side kind of needing surgery at some point.
0: And lastly, what's the one time you delivered the Spear that was most memorable to you?
1: Uh, Again, I think it's got to be the Jeff one Um, because there's a reason that it's played so consistently. And um, just the utter trust that Jeff placed in me uh, to be able to pull that off and, and pull it off while keeping him as as safe as you possibly can in that kind of scenario. And, and for him to just take that thing without batting an eye and, and just do it as only Jeff Hardy can, you know, he helped to give me the the most played moment of my career. And um, again, for something that, that will outlive me, um, that that's gotta be the one I think.
0: All right. Well, I cannot wait to see you in the main event of WrestleMania night two against Roman Reigns for the Universal Championship. I'm going to be there. I am going to be screaming my lungs out. Uh, Good luck. I'm very much looking forward to it. Like I said, it's a special thing since it's the 10 year of your retirement and seeing you in a title match again. It's going to be very special.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to soak every aspect of it in because who knows if it happens again, right? So um I, I just need to go out there and enjoy every moment of it and just savor it all that, that's where I'm at in every form of life but in particular with this because I understand that uh, more than more than most that this can all be ripped away the next day so'm I'm, I'm just gonna just gonna savor it
0: <laughs> good good all right well thank you so much for giving me the time today I appreciate it
1: thanks Ryan I appreciate it man.
0: Well, that was a fantastic interview. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I am very excited to be doing this show on a weekly basis to learn more about my favorite superstars, my favorite on-air talent in WWE, and that was a perfect example of it. If you want to keep listening to more interviews like this, make sure you subscribe to the Out of Character channel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on social media as well at WWE on Fox. We've got a lot of surprises in store for the show. This was not just my only big guest, and I'm calling it quits after that. We're gonna have a lot of other big guests. So please, please, please subscribe. You will not wanna miss all the content we have coming your way. Until next time, I'm Ryan Satin. Thanks for joining me.